because we've seen the traditional sources of purpose decline. So things like community, um, knowing your neighbours, church attendance, those kind of things have declined. So our sense of significance and meaning and purpose is coming more from work than it ever has done. So people are thinking about it in a different way as well. So the organisations, the leaders need to really be thinking about this and providing great culture, doing great things for their people. We're in an incredibly talent short market and that's, there'll be economic cycles, but it's not going to change in the grand scheme of things over the next 10 years or so. So leaders need to be thinking about that and working on how can they, how can they keep, how can they retain and develop their people and keep them involved. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is the Managing Director of Beaumont People, a renowned recruitment and consulting firm, is a powerful speaker and the author of the career-changing book, Meaningful Work. She is an opinion columnist at CEO World Magazine and has a diverse experience working with Robert Half International, the University of Sydney and Chandler McLeod Group. Our guest is the president of the Recruitment, Consulting and Staffing Association of Australia and New Zealand, and more importantly, is the chair on the development committee of the North Foundation, an organization dedicated to advancing medical research and patient care. I'm excited to bring you an inspiring leader who will challenge your perception of work's potential, unlock the world of meaningful work, bring perspective on the future of work, and share the power of confidential conversations. Nina Mapsenbone. Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Craig. Quite the, uh, quite the uh, introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome. Now, telling that accent, uh, I would say you probably weren't born in Sydney. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what was the big dream when you were running around the playground? <laughs> so I grew up in Hertfordshire, just outside London in the UK. I've been here for over 20 years, but I can't shake the accent. Um, and when I was very young, I wanted to be an actress, but I think that's kind of, you know, a normal thing but for a big part of my teenage years I wanted to be a teacher that was really where I genuinely thought I would land uh, and I didn't obviously but that's where I thought I was going when I was in my late teens even through to my early and mid-20s and beyond for a while there yeah and so were you someone that was more of a leader or a follower when you were in your in your childhood and into your formative years 
I think if you make me pick one or the other, I'd say leader, not because I necessarily set out to lead, but because I've never been a follower. So I would define myself by not being a follower rather than being a leader. But I think the default then is other people uh, pick up on. I've never been one to worry about what other people think. I don't do a lot of the typical things that are expected from a society perspective. Um, I'm, I don't do a lot of the kind of female things that we kind of told we have to do. So I, yeah, I, I think I've always gone my own way. I've always chosen my own path. And so that, I guess, I guess that's what made me a leader from a young age. And so what was those paths, what, what was one of those paths that you've taken that was very unexpected and ended up kind of broadening your, your mind to a different perspective on the world? Well, when I was, uh, when I left school, I, I always did very well academically. I never struggled at all at school. I took a gap year and I went to work uh, on a uh, equestrian estate and I used to enjoy horse riding thoroughly. And I started studying there to become a horse riding instructor. And I did toy with whether I might stick with that for a little while because I love being outdoors. I love being around the animals. Um, but there would have been a very strong sense from a lot of people that given my academic achievements, that would have been a waste of my talents, for example. I, ultimately, I didn't mostly because I needed to make more money and there's no money in horses, as anyone who's in horses knows, unless you're you know, doing incredibly well out of them. But uh, that was yeah, one of those unexpected things. Took a year off, didn't go straight to university, absolutely worked mucking out stables for a number of months. <laughs> And that's quite interesting, you know, when, when we look at, you know, you're obviously in recruiting and, and companies are looking at people, you know, how often do they look at, you know, you've achieved this much, uh, you've done this job versus the more of the broader uh, person and, and maybe what experiences they've had? Well, interestingly, I think that is going to increasingly change. The answer is they should. And some organizations do that really well. They should really look at the transferable skills, skills-based recruiting. And some organizations do it really well. It's, it's important to have the experience. You know, we do, we do still look for experience in what we do. Um, but it, there's a lot in transferable skills. And that's one of the things that's going to change uh, as AI increasingly takes over a lot of the task-based jobs is it will be the human skills that we're looking for that will be the differentiator between what makes somebody successful in their career or not. Hmm. I mean, the human intelligence, so to speak, if we, if we can um, frame it in that way, <laughs> is probably more important than it's ever been. Um, you know, the more we use technology, the more we trust other things to make decisions, the more we need to, you know, have that sense of the world as a human being and, and maybe even look at, you know, things like critical analysis and um, decision making and things like that and how we can uh, ensure that the decisions that might be made by non-human are actually serving us in the right way. Um, so I love the fact that you're looking, that, that it's going to go more down that path around transferable skills and, and more around the human element. Um, I was ch I was chatting to someone the other night, like the, the number of people we see who will go off and they'll study and then they do an MBA and then they go into their career. And, and I kind of quite find it fascinating that, you know, you took a, a gap year in a way and, and worked in the horses um, because I kind of think a lot of professions, if we're going to study for them, we actually require some experience first to get the most out of them. Uh, the number of people that go and study something and, and it's so difficult because you've got nothing to relate it to. Um, 
either will deter them away from that industry once they finish their education or they don't catch most of the stuff they should be learning. What do you think? I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I find interesting, and I don't know if this is a cultural difference between England and Australia or if it's a difference over time because I'm obviously not young anymore, um, but one of the things I find interesting is when I went to university, I studied geography. I have a master's in geography. I spent a lot of my life standing on the side of mountains and glaciers, counting rocks and stones, very unrelated to what I do day to day now. But when I went to university when I was younger, I'm talking 30 odd years ago now, we were taught to go to study something we loved and that the skills and the, the, the love of learning, what you learn, the skills you learn would do very well in business generally you know, unless you were actually going to be a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor where you needed a professional qualification, it was perfectly acceptable to study something just because you love it and it would still lead to uh, being accepted into good careers. It seems to me now more that people look for the degree relevant to the profession they're in and that it can, that can be a bit of a holding somebody back if they're not studying that degree. And people, I see the young around me choosing degrees because they think they know what their career pathways and how many people really know what their career pathway is in in the book we have six really interesting case studies only one of them really genuinely knew what they wanted to do when they were young for example so trying to force people to pick a degree that will define their whole career quite early i think is challenging at best for the young yeah it's interesting because if i look back to when i was you know in even my very very young teenage years i knew exactly what i was gonna do uh, and and studied specifically for it. I always knew that I was going to be a sport coach and, and work in that. So I studied sports science, but I also knew I'd be a CEO and I would lead people later on. And, you know, everything has transpired in that. But even then, knowing where I wanted to go and then studying along the way, I still feel like university came too fast. And, and I felt that really to get that, if... If I was to do it again, I'd actually like to go spend a couple of years in the workforce, then go back to university, which is really hard to do, right? Because once you give people a taste of money, uh, it's, <laughs> it's very, very hard to go, hey, you know what? You now need to reduce the amount of income you're probably going to get or um, to, to go back and study, or you're going to need to be locking yourself away from any social interactions for the next three years so you can do both <laughs> it's challenging we talk about um in the book we talk about the four factors of meaningful work and one of those factors is the societal factor it's how much the society and the culture we live in how much value that assigned to the work we do how much um access we have economic and obviously physical access to the job and also the kind of societal expectations of us but one of the things for the youth is that often they're going to university because of that societal aspect, their school and their family and their culture has told them that's what's expected. Mm. They're often very influenced by that factor at that point in their life. But they don't, as, as we were just sort of saying, they don't necessarily haven't yet formed fully for themselves what it is they look like. There's a reason mature students do so much better and perform well at university by comparison with those that are entering through. Obviously, not everyone, I'm making a generalization. Yes. But I think if we did have a system that allowed people yeah, that ability. And it's getting better. There are now online courses. You can study part time. There are ways, you know, people are trying to adapt the process for it. But it is tough when we try and force people and pigeonhole people into making a decision early in their career. Yeah. And, and some go to university for those social interactions and then just hope that they get a pass mark so they can have a piece of paper at the end. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, talking about 
for you, obviously, when I studied geography, had uh, done the equestrian, uh, what was your kind of first career pathway and and what did you learn from that in a way? So I was quite shaped. Both my parents lost their jobs in the recession of the early 90s. And so um, and as a result, we had sort of family breakdown, various things happened. So by the time I was at university, I was incredibly independent. I was self-funded. Um, so I was doing a lot of work to pay my way through university. I'd always worked part-time casual jobs all through school anyway. And then I um, got involved in selling aerial photographs door to door on a commission only basis in America. So I used mm. to spend my summers while I was at university flying to America, selling aerial photographs door to door and uh, making some money out of it and coming home and, and using that to help fund my university. And I worked with them full time after I left university. Uh, ended up uh, for a while becoming the national sales manager. But part of that process, we would travel around universities to recruit the kind of cohort for the next summer to go and sell these photographs door to door. And I worked with them all up for about five years, um, six, maybe six years through university and then for a few years after university. Those, the things that that job taught me, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, but the skills it taught me were just invaluable because I learned, I was always quite good. I was always like outgoing and extroverted. I didn't have a problem chatting to new people, but going to a foreign country, knocking on doors of people you've never met before, um, befriending them, selling them aerial photographs. I learned that taught me a huge amount of skills, but it also taught me a lot about business because it taught me a lot about resilience. It taught me a lot about growth. It taught me a lot of the those human skills that we were just talking about, Craig. It taught me a lot of the human skills, perseverance, um, the ability to kind of overcome problems and hurdles, all of that stuff has really stood me in good stead for my career. Hmm. And so where did the shift coming, obviously you're talking about recruiting as part of that role, but when did the shift come from you to move more into recruiting people for organizations? So I moved formally into recruitment when I came to Australia, which was in 2002. I'd always had significant elements of it in my roles prior, but um, I joined a recruitment firm when I first moved here. I arrived in Australia with my then boyfriend, now husband, and our plan was to see if we could stay. And we knew to do that, we'd have to get sponsorship. I knew that um, a number of people I had worked with uh, in the sales industry had gone into recruitment, had been quite successful at it. So I knew that that was a sort of viable option for me. I, I'd got a taste of it, obviously, with the roles I'd done previously. And so when I arrived here, I was very specifically looking for roles in recruitment to get a visa because I knew I could get the visa as well and the rest as they say is history <laughs> <laughs> is history and we, we've you know i think the uh the landscape of employment is changing and and it seems to be changing quite rapidly at the moment and you know we look at you know in the past we had people who had career jobs um, they, they worked for the same company for 30 years or 40 years um so to speak or they stayed in the the same specific um, type of role for their entire career. Whereas now we're seeing, you know, people having, you know, maybe up to even six career shifts in their life. Um, so the, when it comes to, from a recruiting perspective, um, how are companies receiving the fact that people may not stay in their job as long and also, 
Uh, actually, let's stick on that question first because I think that one's quite quite big enough as it is, and I'll go on to the second question shortly. So, yeah, that that how are companies dealing with the fact that people don't tend to stick around as long anymore? Look, it's tough at the organisational level because you know most organisations we always see in we work across a, a number of different sectors and industries. They really need at least three years out of a person to kind of get their return on investment. Now, that's quite a commercial way of thinking about it. Mm. Um, but most organizations are commercial organizations. And the reason we say that is because often the first year is about getting somebody up to speed. The second year is about them kind of performing at a level that's almost at that kind of, if we're talking commercial, and I don't like talking about people in a commercial sense, but if we were, like the second year is almost the kind of break even. And the third year is when you get the return on your investment. So that's a very obviously generalized view of it. That's typically what you organizations need to see from their people. And we do see a lot of people struggle to stay in jobs that long. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I think partly we have um, created a world where the loyalty has gone on both sides because of the nature of, of um, you know, the economy and the environment. People are not loyal to their organizations because organizations are not always loyal to their people. So that can kind of hinder the challenges there a little bit. They can make it more of a, a difficult thing. But also, I think people are less clear on, on what they're looking for, and they are looking for more meaning in their work. And this is one of the things we uncovered in the research for the book. They are searching for more from their job. Work has become a very important part of our identity. It plays a big part in our purpose. As we've seen the traditional sources of purpose decline, so things like community um knowing your neighbours, church attendance, those kind of things have declined. So our sense of significance and meaning and purpose is coming more from work than it ever has done. So people are thinking about it in a different way as well. So the organisations, the leaders need to really be thinking about this and providing great culture, doing great things for their people. We're in an incredibly talent short market and that's, there'll be economic cycles, but it's not going to change in the grand scheme of things over the next 10 years or so. So Leaders need to be thinking about that and working on how can they how can they keep how can they retain and develop their people and keep them involved. It's an interesting one, and it might challenge you a little bit here. Um, so we've mm. got recruitment firms, and normally we use recruitment firms to bring someone from outside into the organisation. Uh, but but if we could get companies to invest more in creating pathways for people to move up through an organization or even invest in rather than looking outside for skills, right? So we're talking about skill shortages. Why don't we, why don't we invest more time in transferring people's skills or predicting what we're going to need and say, Hey, look, over the next couple of years, there's a potential that your job may become redundant. Here are some options that we see in the future we'll be happy to, to co-invest with you in developing these skills so that you can remain re relevant in the marketplace. Absolutely. And you're talking my language, Craig, because even though we're a recruitment firm, I would much rather work with organizations that are great places to work, that have a great culture, mm. a great environment. That's the style of recruitment we do. We like to partner with people and we like to place people that are going to stay there for a long time. I tell my clients all the time, the best recruitment they can do is look after their people so they don't have to do it as often. The, the trick to that, though, and what you're saying is really being open to that conversation. We see a lot of uh, a lot of organizations, when you know a person, which you do when they work with you and you know them every day, you know their good points and their bad points. And as a result, you, you tend to judge them differently 
to a complete outsider. Yeah. Um, and think of it, it's a relationship game. So it's a bit like, you know, dating or, you know, when you know your partner, your, your, your husband, I love my husband dearly. I've been with him 20 something years more now, but I know his good points. I know his bad points. You know, you see somebody walk past that's, you know, good looking and just got a nice smile. You think of it quite differently to somebody, you know, all of their good points and bad points. So you have to remind yourself mm. as leaders that you need to think about um, the whole person and not kind of discount them just because you know more about them. Yeah, and it brings up an interesting thing too, right? We, as human beings, we naturally tend to focus more on the things that we should fix rather than the things that are already really good. And I, you know, when we look at, say, for parents out there, their children come home with a report card, what do we focus on? It's not the, it's generally not the uh, the A's or A pluses, et cetera. It's generally like the C's or D's and it's like, oh crap, how do we fix this? And we spend so much time trying to fix something rather than going, okay, well, they're already really good at doing these things. How can we harness that? And then maybe look at how do we prop up those, you know, support those areas enough so they can get by. So if we transfer that into an organization, it's like, let's, let's spend more time focusing on what people do really, really well. Either we can try and support them to lift up the things that maybe they're challenged in, or we get other people around them that can that can provide what they don't have. Yeah, there's, there's two points that I'd like to make, Craig. The first is that um, there's a lot of evidence to show that when people work to their strengths, they perform better, they're better engaged, they're less stressed, they're more vital, they're more creative. There's all sorts of statistics to back that up. So if you know what your people's strengths are and you are able as a leader to allocate your kind of tasks and your resources and your workload based on their strengths rather than sort of very strictly defined job descriptions obviously obviously mm. they need to kind of fall within the remit of it but but try and actually base it within their strengths you'll get better performance and it'll, the, your people will be better they'll be more engaged you're less likely to have the problems but the second thing and I talk about this a lot when I'm speaking publicly about work is that the vast majority of people don't wake up in the morning and think to themselves I know what I'm going to do today my entire goal is to annoy as many of my colleagues as I can. I'm going to go to work and I'm going to ruin everyone's day. I'm going to upset as many people as I can. That's not what people wake up thinking. No. Yet when something happens and we're in the receiving end of it, that's what we go to. So we have to get better at acknowledging that everybody makes mistakes. And what's one person came out of one person's mouth wasn't necessarily how it was intended to be heard or, you know, the, the intention is usually good. So go back to that and start from that base. I love that, 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 that focusing on intention because, yeah, we can quite often make a decision or make a, uh, an observation of someone based on something they may say or do in an instant, in a moment. And it's very surface level. It's like a Band-Aid in a way. And rather than actually understanding what might be causing that, and and we don't see that enough in corporate i feel um i'm very fortunate i get to get to work with a lot of great athletes previously but also now a lot of different people who are at different levels of whether they want to learn to speak or be a leader etc um and it's quite common that i will i'm always looking through what's creating this behavior what, what is leading to this what might be holding someone back so I think there's a big shift now to where we need leaders and people in organizations who can understand how to coach people or understand how to uh, 
focus more on getting the most out of them as a human being versus trying to get the most out of them in their job that they're doing. Yeah, it's interesting. We So in our first research that we did, which was in 2019, the most popular factor of meaningful work then was having the trust of your manager. But high up the list was also um, having clear direction from your manager. Mm. And this is where there's a real tension because too much trust and you don't know what you're doing, you don't have the clear direction, too much clear direction and you feel like you're micromanaged. Yeah. So this is why leadership is difficult for people because that kind of it's on a spectrum almost and where your team sit on that spectrum in terms of how much trust they want versus how much direction they need and also based on their performance the communication is the key thing in all of this because the mm. more you're talking and the more open conversations you have the better your leadership the better your team will perform the more engaged they'll be and then you know as we said at the minute a minute ago the less, the less you'll have to recruit in the first place you'll you'll you know retain and develop your people from within so talking about uh, communication and kind of the, the space we work in now. So we've we've had this shift to allowing more flexible working, uh, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, but the one thing I think people are finding the most challenging is is actually going back a little bit in time to communication about the importance of just picking up the phone and calling someone, um, <laughs> creating those spontaneous conversations rather than allowing them to happen around the water cooler or or at the or down the corridor after a meeting or to a meeting. But now we have to be a lot more, I suppose, uh, purpose, not, not purposeful, but we need to be, we need to be thinking ahead to create those moments a lot more. And, and I'm kind of wondering, I'm watching some companies going, oh, everyone has to come back in the work because I can't solve this problem. Well, it's like, no, just pick up the phone. <laughs> just, just go back to what we used to do, you know, like create those communication moments to get to learn and know more about your people and, and spend time with them in a way that um, would have organically potentially happened in the past. There's a bigger challenge with that as well, though, Craig, which is that the demographics coming through the young, younger population, they don't know how to and they cannot stand picking up a phone. They haven't had to do it. So we, we, talk, we talk about this a lot internally. Our, a lot of our role is relationship building. So we do need people to pick up the phone, go out and see clients and candidates, meet them in person. But we're dealing now with generations that have only ever text or instant messaged or on whatever various you know app that they're using. They're not a generation. I mean, I remember when I, when I had a crush on a boy, I had to phone the landline at home and get through the parents to talk to the boy. You know, that was really good phone sort of coaching skills right there. They haven't had to go through yeah. this. I was talking with um, the founders of The Daily Oz, which is a news online service on Instagram. It's, it's for the youth. And they were saying, yeah, nobody of their generation, absolutely nobody under the age of about 26 will, do, will comfortably pick up a phone. It's one of the things you really need to train and develop and give mm. them comfort levels on. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I use that as a bit of a, as an analogy, but I mean, about creating those spaces where we communicate with people when we connect with them, you know, whether it be through email or text, et cetera. I think too often we've, we've seen work go into a space where you use things like Slack, et cetera, where you're just, it, it's more task orientated or you uh, meetings are, oh, we, we had too many meetings or, or, or we're spending too much time in meetings. So let's shorten up the meetings. But yes, that may solve a particular problem but it loses that connection with people and getting to know them and understand them and and to be quite honest bringing them back into the office are you actually going to solve that or not in the way that we actually do work now because you're still going to use slack in the workplace 
whether you're in the office or whether they're working in Bali, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I think it's a conscious shift from our leaders to actually create those those spaces for having human interactions versus work interactions. Yeah, we talk about it um, as the need for deep work versus collaboration and how much of your role, every role has both. How much does your role need of deep work versus collaboration and trying to adjust your time with others accordingly. But it is important. Your point is true. It's the human to human contact, regardless of whether it's on the phone or in person, but ultimately it needs to lead to that because that's how relationships formed so how do you create the spaces for that to happen without making it a kind of mandated role it's a tough balance to get right it's a conversation that leaders we see across every industry are still having Mm. with their people yeah so so we're talking about meaningful work now uh you know is something you're very much focused on and and we're hearing a lot about you know this in the world of of work i suppose and the future of it around people want more purpose People need to be connected to the purpose of the organization, need to know the purpose of every single role. Um, when we think about not only look seeking purpose all the time, will people actually truly find their purpose uh, in other people's organizations? And, and are we just going to see people searching for something that is uh, sometimes may not even be possible? In, in a way that they will just keep searching. I need to find more fulfillment, more fulfillment. And as we know, there are going to be times where we're in jobs, where we're doing something in life where it fulfills you for a while. Then you go through a period that is really challenging, but then it comes back to fulfillment again, but you have to work at it. And it's, I'm kind of wondering where people are kind of in the space where everyone else has to create the space for purpose for myself, but I don't have to do the hard yards myself to create that. I love it, Craig, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there because I talk about, um, I talk in the book about it being a holy grail and it being a journey, not an outcome. So, and you're an ex-athlete, right? So you know this, it's not about the, it's not about, it's not a fixed result. It's not something you attain and then that's it. Magically, you have meaningful work for the rest of your life. We know it changes over time. We know big life events can change what makes work meaningful for you. We also know it's, um, from the research we did, it's actually unique to every individual. So for some people, it's purpose, but for others, it could be entirely different things. And there's four kind of key factors of meaningful work. So knowing where you are on those factors, you know, where the measures are to you and sort of t- it's I talk about tweaking the dials a lot. So it's constantly looking at and working out how do you tweak the dials. And just like if you were training, I'm a hockey player, nowhere near at any kind of level you've been in the past. But, you know, I know when I'm training um, for a game, it's about you build up your fitness slowly. You can't you can't suddenly go from you know the couch to running a marathon. It's you have to keep working and tweaking and working and tweaking. And meaningful work is like that. And things will change, and you have setbacks, and you have to retake a different path or work out what it is that's changed. That doesn't necessarily mean changing jobs, though. It might do. It doesn't nec- and it might mean changing professions entirely. But it might well just be something you can tweak where you are and fix where you are to make it more meaningful. Uh, an interesting conundrum that that just kind of comes to my head here. We're, we're talking, we hear lots about, we need to develop more resilience in people. We, we need to create more purposeful work for people. <laughs> and yes, they can come hand in hand, but for many people, like they want to feel fulfilled every single day. So, uh, but we're trying to build resilience. So we want more resilience, but you get to this point where people go, um, 
okay, I'm not really enjoying this so much anymore. It's not quite fitting my purpose. So I'm going to jump, as you say, you're gonna, I'm going to jump ship. I'm going to find a new place because the grass has got to be greener on the other side. But if you're building resilience, you need to, there's going to be times where things aren't maybe always aligned to your purpose directly. And you're going to have to work through that. So, so what sort of encouragement can we give to people out there about, you know what? Yes, you might have this purpose that you're always going to be seeking that, as you said, it's the holy grail. You may not actually ever achieve the final outcome of whatever it is. Uh, but how do we balance that with resilience? Because, you know, there's got to be, t- there's going to be times where you're just like, this doesn't quite relate, but maybe I'm going to learn something else in this moment. There's, um, you've hit on a couple of key things that are crucial. So I met everybody that comes to work with us here at Beaumont People. I make them watch something on YouTube called the Marshmallow Test. If you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. it's hilarious. But it's, you know, young kids, they get given a marshmallow. If they can wait, then they can have two marshmallows. The person leaves the room, they're filming these kids. And some of them can wait, but most of them are really struggling. They're licking it, they're sitting on their hands, they're trying not to look at it. We are in a world now of instant gratification. Everything is mm-hmm. one marshmallow. People struggle to wait for the two marshmallows, for double the benefit. If they have to wait, it's harder. So we talk a lot about that internally and trying to train people to understand that it's difficult. But the other thing is um, there's a sort of phase you have to go through from comfort zone, and there's lots of graphics on this that I like, but you go from comfort zone into the fear zone to get to the learning and the growth zone. Mm -hmm. And you you have to go through that fear zone to get there. So I always think as long as you're, it comes back to communication, Craig, as long as you're actually talking to your people, training them, them on that letting them know that they will go through that feeling in their role i talk a lot internally when people join us being a recruiter is actually really tough and i always say to people if you don't want to resign at least two or three times in your first year you're probably not human there's a big difference between the thought crossing your mind and actually Mm. doing it because it takes time to build those relationships so let's talk about you know what can you do what can you control what can you work on it's like a training program in sport you can't control the speed you know, the race time, the the score at the end of the match, whatever it might be, but you can control all of the inputs and feeling, making your sense of feeling and satisfaction come from the inputs as long as you know where you're going. And if you've got the destination in mind and you're still clear on where you're going, then you focus on the inputs to get there. Yeah, we've got a natural tendency to to like enjoy comfort, right? We love comfort, mm-hmm. but we know there's no growth in comfort. And so we're always attracted to this, this space of I need to, I, I need to feel comfortable. Um, I don't like being out of my comfort zone. I mean, there are people that love being in the uncomfortable <laughs> zone the whole time, like myself, who, who gets bored very fast and will make sure I'm not bored or, or I'm not complacent or not comfortable. Um, but yeah, it's a really fine balance of of getting people to a space where they feel comfortable, but not so comfortable that they fall into complacent mode. Um, yeah. I use the analogy of, I'm from London originally, obviously we said earlier, so I use the analogy of flying from Sydney to London. If you look at the map, it's pretty much a straight line. Um, and when the pilots get on board the plane, they have, you know, autopilot, I don't know, there's a proper term for it, I'm sure in an airplane, but you know, they, they plug it all in, they know where they're going. But that plane never takes that straight line because there'll be weather events that I think it goes over Ukraine at the moment, for example. There's all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't take that straight line. And as a result, the plane will jig and jag all over the place. But the pilots never lose confidence that their end goal is 
London. And, you know, even even if it looks like they're facing backwards at some times, they still keep going. They do the right things to get there. And they, you know, 99.9%, they land on time in the area and, you know, all is well. So it's understanding that if your path gets, you know, moved off course a little bit, that's a very different thing to not reaching your end goal. Okay. So if we look at... Most successful people, I'm not going to, I'm not going to guarantee it's hundred percent. Most successful people, and, and I'll use an athlete as an example here, right? When you have absolute clarity on what your vision is, what your outcome is. So, so what you're going to achieve, it's very easy to say no. And then everything aligns to what you need to do to get there. All right. So say I'm in 2032, I'm going to win the gold medal and the hundred freestyle and I'm going to stand on top of the podium and they put the gold medal around me in Brisbane. Very, very clear. So it's easy then to say no to lots and lots of things. Purpose and meaningful sometimes is not so clear. It's kind of this thing, but it's not exactly clear. We don't know when we've always achieved it. There's no actual destination on the map. It's more of here's the globe, but we don't know the destination is on the actual, the world. And so is it more about that we actually need to to marry in a way this purpose but we also need an outcome because we can have purpose but then it's very easy to say yes to lots of things um rather than actually saying that ability to cut certain things out so we can focus on achieving something yeah it's an interesting thing so for for me, meaningful work is not just about purpose. Purpose is actually one of the subsets. Mm. It's actually one of the subsets of one of the organi- of the organizational factors. So it's a subset of one of the four Great. factors. It's an important piece. And for some people, it's one of their most important factors. But this is the point is that everybody is unique. So different people have different, uh, you know, things that are important to them to get meaningful work. And it, it purpose is, comes up in the top three all the time. So mm. it's absolutely one of the most popular ones. Uh, but doesn't mean pop- it means popular. Doesn't mean it's necessarily right for everybody. To your point, not everybody wants to be a gold medalist standing on the mm. the podium. So the the key is actually really understanding yourself. We talk about meaningful work being the importance in individual places on them meeting their purpose, but their goals, their values, their strengths. You know, a whole heap of things in the context of their social and cultural environment. And some of those levers will be more important than others, and they might change over time. You know, money, we talk about money and how important is that from a work perspective. That's going to be much more important to me when I have a big mortgage I'm trying to pay off than when I don't, for example. So, and, you know, if you've just, uh, you know, just had children, suddenly you feel a level of responsibility. All of the stories in the book, all of them, the way they talk about how having children affected how they felt about work is really quite interesting. So there are levers that move and change over time so it's about so that outcome is more about what levers are more important you know which levers move towards you and know it and being able to recognize that in the moment the challenge we have i think is we don't often take the time to think about it so we don't recognize the impact it's had until we're at a point where we're unhappy and it's too late to do anything about it okay so if we have if you go into a school a primary school of 12 year olds and you were to explain to them in one sentence what meaningful work is, what would it be? It would be um, doing a job that you like because you're good at it and you enjoy doing the things you're asked to do. Uh, 
at a volume of work, so let's say six roles, but at a level, the amount of work is going to cause you the right amount of stress and pressure to make it exciting, but not so much it makes you tired and exhausted with a group of people around you that you love spending time for and that your friends and family think is a great idea. Okay. Oh. <laughs> that's me that's me explaining the four factors in a six-year-old style sentence <laughs> wow okay okay all right i got lots of things going for let's let's unpack those a little bit uh that my friends and f okay the last one there was friends and family family think is a good idea think is a good idea Whoa. okay that's an interesting one because I know a lot of people that if they followed what their parents think is a good idea around what they should be doing, you should be a lawyer, you should be an accountant, you should be uh, such and such. Um, Let and me rephrase it. Let me rephrase it. Let me say that you are comfortable with how your friends and family will react. Let's phrase it that way. Okay. Because it's it's more about you being able to make peace. So this, that's the societal factor. It's, and you need to you need to be able to make peace with it if it's in conflict with your individual factors. So you're talking about people where it, where the societal is in conflict with the individual. Yep. What their friends and family want to do goes against what they want to do. You need to be able to make peace with that so that you're comfortable okay. to make to make the choices you've made. Okay, that's good because I, I know yeah. I know kids will if they want off want to go off and train horses as a living but their parents are saying no you need to be a lawyer okay so it's good so we need yeah. to you need to no, you're right you're right you're right to pick me up on it because uh, i was caught up in the explaining it to six-year-olds piece <laughs> but you're absolutely right <laughs> no no it's good it's good we need clarity for people here it's important um in regards to i, I like the right amount of pressure without overwhelm now that's an interesting piece in its own space because I find people that are that are find their their meaningful work and they love what they do and they're an A type success driven type person. If someone doesn't put boundaries around them, they're just going to do what I did and they'll work seventy to eighty hours a week and they'll just keep going until they uh, flatline, as I did in my case, or they just so burnt out that they don't want to do that job ever again. So meaningful work has a responsibility not only on the human being that is doing the work but also the people that are leading them um, because if if we really find that passion we're just going to keep doing it yeah absolutely and one of my case studies in the book um shirley chowdhury um she talks about this she was a lawyer for a long time and was working 100 hour weeks at one point it was what it was the thing that ended up um making her change jobs because it was affecting her relationship with her husband she's very open about this in the book but she went she when she was younger she wanted to be a doctor her dad had been a doctor and the reason she decided against it was because she didn't want to work that hard mm. didn't want to put the hours in and then found herself in law doing exactly that so it is absolute and she loved it loved the work loved everything about it but but exactly the point you're making craig is just the you know how you get that balance right to ensure that it's um in line with other factors yeah okay all right so we got two parts there um okay what was the other two the other two was one <laughs> around collaboration with people so that's it that's about the organizational factor so and um, people is only one aspect of it mm. but relationships processes um culture leadership those kind of areas of the organizational factor and how important they are to you again different people some people can work with a leader and not be worried about whether they get on with them or not others really need their leader to be inspiring and you know and the best leader in the world for them to feel like their work is meaningful for example 
Okay, and what was the fourth part? I'm just going to go back. So the, and the first, so the one that we missed was the individual one, which is something they're good at, something that aligns with their personal strengths, their values, their goals, that actually ties in with them as a person. So individual job is the is the volume of work um, and how the work is structured and whether you can make it meaningful for you. So that's that stress, right level of pressure and stress, workload, that side of thing. Okay, so so this is this is kind of an interesting one when you've got people coming into the workforce. Um, you know, because they're not going to really know what they're good at. Yes, they may know certain things, but they don't really know what they're good at until they have exposed themselves in a way. And like I, I and experimented and, and I'm, I don't mean expose yourself, take your clothes off, run down the hallway type <laughs> thing, uh, which may happen in some organizations that kind of got themselves in trouble. Um, but I mean, exposing yourself to different situations, different environments, different people, etc. We We don't really know this. And I always find it fascinating. People go, I'm going to be an accountant. I go and study my finance and accountancy. And then they go and work for an accountancy for the next 20 years and then go have a midlife crisis. Go, I don't really know what I want in life. Uh, versus those who go through multiple, like that, that put themselves in different situations over that first kind of 10, 20, oh, 10, 10 to 15 years of career to really understand what they are strong at. So I'm kind of interested in that one. Maybe explain from you a little bit more around what you're good at because I was good at sport, but it didn't mean that I, and, and I may have gone and worked in retail. I wasn't good at, like I'd never had any experience in retail. So it didn't, so I wasn't already, I didn't have, I'm good at this, but I went and worked in it and, and learned lots from it and enjoyed my time there. So, so what does, I'm good at something mean? So that's a great question. And it comes back to the transferable skills we were talking about mm. earlier, because you want to label them as strengths rather than as tasks so that they can be applied to many different things. So, and our strengths can come from nature. They're either inherent in us. Uh, I've always enjoyed talking to people. I've always been extroverted. That's never been a problem for me. That's a natural thing. They can come from nurture. You might learn something over time and become good at it. And it then becomes a strength, like I can be quite analytical in my reading, my critical thinking style, but that's absolutely a learned skill. I didn't, you know, wasn't born with that. Um, or they can come from uh, experience and just general experience with other people from the nature, nurture and, and learning over time side of things. So when you label those strengths, then you're thinking about how can I apply those strengths? That's the individual factor. Where you apply them from a task perspective becomes mm. the job factor. Where are they suited? So for me, I'm Action is one of my strengths. I'm very action-oriented. And um, while my personality, I use this example in the book, my personality in lots of ways, my personal, my values, my beliefs, things I like would suit a librarian role because I have a real passion about books, uh, a real belief in it. I love reading. But I am too action-oriented and too extroverted to ever really be a librarian. So that part of it wouldn't work. You'd be a fun librarian. <laughs> I'd probably break all the noise rules regularly, for example. So, you know, it's, it's marrying your individual strengths to the job, which then comes yep. into the type of work, the volume of work, the, you know, the boundaries around it, side of things. Okay. Then you get someone like me who, who loves being uncomfortable, who if someone says, um, you know, this is the type of, like, like, I'll take the library point of view. Um, that, you know, that it's a place for quiet uh, reflection and reading, etc. And I'm like, no, we're going to learn. Let's have fun. Let's make it an extroverted space where it's all crazy. So 
Uh, you get someone who, who likes to break the, the, the mold of what is perceived a job is or what skill sets are required to go, you know what, let's do it differently. Yep. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? You know, a lot of libraries, my local library now has breakout rooms, reading rooms. The one two suburbs over is now running a 24-hour access for people to go in on a Saturday night or, you know, to read and do things overnight. So they are Libraries are also evolving and developing, probably because people are like you, Craig, have said we can do something more exciting mm. with this. Okay, so we're we're looking at meaningful work. Let, let's let's put ourselves in a CEO's shoes now. They've got they're going to have a multitude of people who uh, have. You know, everyone's got a different way of m what does meaningful look like to me as a human being, right? What, what does my life look like? And, and we really have 8 billion different versions of this in the world right now, or just over. Um, we've got to cater towards creating a space for meaningful work. Uh, we're also, we're also in a space of trying to create a, a place of diversity um, where people's backgrounds and experiences may create tension in, in certain spaces for all the right reasons or, or sometimes the wrong reasons. Um, but we're, yeah, so we're trying to balance this whole thing of creating a sustainable business where we're looking at diversity, we're looking at resilience, we're looking at meaningful work, we're giving people choice, we're giving them uh, some boundaries, we're giving them flexibility trying to bring this all together it requires a whole new skill set for leaders and it's possibly more challenging now to be a leader than it ever has potentially it, I, i'm not going to say it is definitely but it potentially is because of societal expectations in require and in regards to what's required in the workforce i couldn't agree more and to make it worse we're facing talent shortages and we will do so for the next 10 years obviously notwithstanding economic cycles um, that makes that kind of attraction and retention piece harder as well. But what we see, I mean, there was some research that came out of Future Forum that said, if you go back to the kind of flexibility piece and the work-life balance piece, people that have complete flexibility over their schedule, um, I'm going to get the statistic wrong, so maybe I won't quote it, but I think it was 59% more productive and significantly more engaged with their employees. But the same research showed that leaders, more stressed, have more anxiety, sleeping less, so the people that have to lead in this world are finding it more challenging. So you're absolutely right, Craig, it is it is a challenge for leaders. It is something, and when I talk to CEOs, which I do regularly, that kind of how we lead people through this is one of is still the biggest challenge that comes up day in, day out, because behind every organization, there are the people that make it happen. But that's where, that's where those that get this right are really going to excel from their competition. And that's why this is so important. Mm. So the last couple of years has been the biggest disruption possibly from from a global perspective in people's lives of what we've had in our, you know, in our generation so far or, or our existence on, on the planet um, during our time of life. But the biggest challenge hasn't hit yet. The last three no. years have actually been quite easy for leaders. The, what's coming up is damn hard because what people feel like when you talk about flexible working we're in a honeymoon's phase and it's a longer honeymoon than what people would expect it's a honeymoon phase because anyone who's ever worked from home um and i've done it three times now so i know exactly what phases you go through 
uh, will realize that there's a space where you love certain things and then you'll get to a point where you crave something else or something else comes along. So I'm in a great conundrum right now. I have a baby daughter. Uh, We both work from home. We get beautiful amounts of time with our daughter. We get to see a lot more things than you would if you were going to a physical office. Absolutely love that. But it's so hard to get any work done because you're to- you're distracted and disrupted all the time. You can't like, and, and I, I've just been away in Brisbane and I actually stayed an extra day or so, so I could get some work done, like, like get some real deep thinking work. And my productivity in that time is huge, right? I can get so much more done. But then I factor in, if I come back to, I'm working from home and I get my daughter. I don't have to worry about driving to a physical office. I don't have to worry about the extra costs of, you know, buying coffees and, and buying lunch, etc. because I'm making it at home. So the, the trade-offs, are, um, uh, there are a lot of trade-offs that happen. So when we look at meaningful work, this is going to, like, to me, it is, we can, people can go, yeah, this is what's meaningful, but that can change pretty quick depending on what they're craving at that time. You know, people might crave more of being around more people, but then they go back into the workforce and go, yeah, cool. I'm in the office and then go, yeah, I, I kind of like lots of this, but I actually like being alone again. I, I want some time to myself. So this push and pull in not every organization, because there are some that require people to be fully in the office or there's some like mine, which requires a no office and everyone works remotely, is going to be a big challenge for everyone involved. Yeah, we 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 built a, a meaningful work profile tool to help people measure some of these things as they change, so they can get a sense of it. My, and for me, the reason I'm sharing that is that on my profiles, if I look at my profile in February 2022 by comparison with January 2023, my relationship um, relationships is one of the subsets of the organisational factor. That was very low in February 2022 after the back of all the lockdowns and working from home and we weren't really fully back in the office at that point. We just started kind of going back a bit. And so relationships for me as a factor of meaningful work was really quite low at that point in time. It definitely increased by January 2023 because I'm back in the office. I'm here today. I'm engaging with people. I see the value of it again. It was easy for me to forget how important those relationships are when I was you know, working from home and everything was done over teams. So you're absolutely calling out a crucial point, Craig, which is that it can change over time. And we need to, the best way to get meaningful work, I tell people this all the time, the best way to get it is to measure it, monitor it, stay on top of it. You don't have to, I mean, our tool is free so anyone can use it, but you don't have to measure it formally. You can just be thinking about Mm. it and understanding the theory. But, But the time spent thinking about it, that deep work, you know, taking a time in Brisbane to sit and think about these things, can make a massive difference to you as an individual and also as leaders to leading your organization. Hmm. Uh, so it's, I'm curious about what we need to be discussing or at, at a, at a school at, and from an education mm-hmm. perspective, what, what do we need to be integrating into schools now that we wouldn't have done before in regards to them to be able to understand how to look at work going forward and what's meaningful and and how to you know how to make sure you still have resilience there and it's and how to go deeper when things might get a little bit challenging to try and understand what 
might be making it challenging for us because it might be just that fact of I need to work from home more versus in the office might just be the the shift they need rather than actually changing job or it might be um you know there might be something else that is required but the surface level is this is not working i need to change jobs because we see a lot of people do that they just they just rip the band-aid off they just it's like a band-aid all right easy i just need to change jobs i'm not meaningful here change jobs yeah. but it might just be a subtle shift it might be just asking your boss can i shift from marketing to sales could it be whatever it is i, I didn't uh, yeah, I'm and it may curious. not even be, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no, I'm just curious to think what what do we need to look at from an education perspective now? Yeah, you, and you, I was going to say you're bang on because it may not even be a shift from marketing to sales. It might just even be a shift within how you organise and structure your day within the role you're doing mm. as well. From an educational perspective, I think the, the best the best I see of education, and some um, schools absolutely here in Australia are doing this and um, a lot of the schools overseas, they're looking at what's coming. And they're seeing that and they're not necessarily looking at it from a technical point of view. It's not that they're all teaching all the kids coding. A lot of them are, you know, and all the computer mm. stuff. But it's more about it really does come back to those human skills. The biggest fear I have for the workforce, really for the 2025 to 2030, so coming very soon, is that with the way AI is going to fundamentally change the way we do work, there is going to be a gap where we're going to have leaders with the experience and the human skills, but the youth coming through having no way of learning those human skills because all the jobs, all the middle level jobs that typically is where you learn your kind of perseverance, your resilience, your critical analysis, your relationship building skills, your kind of grit, all of that kind of metacognition is another one. Mm. But the way you're thinking about things all of that you usually learn through your career as you grow and develop. But we're going to have this kind of yawning gap in the middle where a lot of those roles are going to change so much that the, the, the younger generations coming through aren't going to have the opportunity to do the kind of work where they would learn those skills. So we need to go back to school and be teaching that from yeah. a very young age and incorporating those skills into the style of teaching, you know, the best teaching styles, the project-based learning, mm collaboration all of those kind of things crucial yeah it's interesting i was reading and i'm trying to think who it was it wasn't deloitte it was another big company released a kind of a workforce index type report a couple of weeks ago and out of the top seven things that we need to be focused on the top six were human and, Absolutely. And it's really interesting. I post about it and someone went, oh, well, yeah, but these have always been there. We've already been working on this. And it said, yes, but now they're more important than they have ever been before. That's why they are there because they're more crucial. So um, we don't need to worry about, you know, in the past in education, right, we used to quiz people on their knowledge. Well, knowledge is not the factor anymore. It's what you do with the knowledge. And so that's with these skills. So I, hopefully because, you know, you've got ChatGPT or, or whatever tool you're using to, to find your information, it's so easy to find information. So knowledge is, is not the power anymore. It's how you utilize that knowledge is more powerful than the knowledge now. And so I'm hoping we see that shift. And even in regards to organizations that they look at training those that may not have had that experience in those you know critical skills thinking how to communicate with people how to interact um how to collaborate how how to make decisions more effectively 
that we see that shift happening. Absolutely. Um, Deloitte do say that two thirds of jobs will be soft skills intensive by 2030. So I don't know if that's the same report that you're referring to, but definitely that's out of one of their reports. Mm. And that kind of piece around lessons around working effectively are need to be on everybody's training and development program. Things like growth mindset, things like having difficult conversations. Mm. You know, they're the, they're the kind of things that we need to be training. We do train on that internally here, but they're the kind of things that kids need to be learning in school as well. And often we have seen a generation with, and again, sweeping generalization, but helicopter parents, you know, teachers having to back down because of parent complaints. That's not teaching the kids the skills mm. they need to learn to be able to work in the workforce of the future. Yeah, I was talking about, uh, you know, spending that that day um, <laughs> in Brisbane, right? That extra day, or actually it was ended up being two days because I ended up spending some time with one of our team members there, we do program design and we're building out a program for a company right now. It's a graduate program. And mm. so it's for those in their first one or two years out of university going into the workforce and three programs that we've designed in there. And we're looking at and we're just going through this going, wow, how cool would this have been if we had learned this at such a young age? But one is around mastering presentations, so around mm. delivering impactful presentations. Uh, one's on leading powerful conversations and and some of that will be interesting because they may not have had the experience to really comprehend some of it so we need to we'll have to we have to kind of work with them a little bit to make sure they grasp different aspects of conversations and meetings and interactions where it gets challenging or or how can we better and then the last one is around influence and negotiating mm. and so um, the amount of money this company is going to spend on investing into these people that are brand new uh, is, is phenomenal and, and quite outstanding. And I'm, and I'm hoping that the, the graduates really appreciate what is happening there because this is pretty rare. And these are some skill sets that will fast track them through their career. Um, you're, you're spot on. And those skills will be more beneficial to them than anything technical they oh, learn. 100%. Anyone can learn a technical thing on the job, you know. Mm -hmm. To, but those human skills and putting them in those situations and helping them fast track, which can be a really tough learning curve at certain times. Uh, you know, it's pretty hard to go and present in front of a C-suite for the first time and you think you've got 30 minutes and they give you 10 um, and things like that, right? It changes yeah. pretty quick. We, you talked about the individual meaningful work profile tool. What do you have for organizations so that they can better understand not just individually, but collectively, um, what meaningful work is for that group of people that are doing the job they do. Yeah, so we have an organizational meaningful work profile tool as well. Um, it's in beta, which means it's free, so that's always good, um, but it's there and usable. What that does is take the um, individual tool, which was back, um, based on the academic research, and it takes the statements out of those tools and applies them at an organizational level so that you can measure how well your organization is providing meaningful work. And the great thing about the tool is that it allows you to see where you're doing well and then think, how can we replicate that and you know, make sure we're doing that across every department, every team. And it, it gives you data around areas where you either had no idea that you weren't doing well, or often you might have had a feeling or, you know, and it, it goes beyond sort of standard engagement or culture surveys because it looks at all of those factors. What I love about it is that you don't need to be brilliant at everything. So we talked earlier about leadership being tough and it could be quite over, overwhelming mm. if you looked at it and thought oh my goodness i have to do everything on the tool because it does cover all of the four factors and the subsets within those factors what you're looking at is 
Is what you're providing from a meaningful work perspective matching what the individuals in your organization want? Because it doesn't matter if you have weak areas, if they're also your individual's weak areas. If they're not, if they're not important to your individuals, you don't need to waste your time and money and resources fixing those areas as much as really maximizing the ones that are important to your people. And different organizations have different strengths in terms of the way they provide mm. meaningful work. I talk in the about the, um, there's a report obviously um, out of PwC that talk about the four worlds of work in the future and the kind of corporate versus social responsibility versus human world versus innovative. Mm-hmm. They're kind of the four key themes. Those, if the, if the business world fragments into those four types of, of world, which they're predicting it will, that doesn't mean any one of those is better than another. It means that they will appeal to different types of people. Different individuals will be attracted to meaning in those organizations in different ways. Yeah. Okay. Um, what is one thing? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. What do, what do you think is the most important thing for people to consider as an employee in regards to meaningful work? I think they need to understand that it is unique to them and that it can change over time. So to be really thinking about it quite deeply, um, it really is this kind of summary of this whole conversation. It's not a it's not a fixed point. It's real and it's understanding that it's individual job organization and the societal and how much that impacts you and thinking about all four of those areas to really try and work out what meaningful work is for you. Okay, so let's flip that now to from a leader's perspective. Uh, what's what's the the best piece of advice that you give to leaders right now in regards to creating a space for meaningful work? So I would flip it and say the same thing. So are your from an individual perspective, are you letting your people work to their strengths, and are you talking to them about what's important to them? Are you adapting your jobs accordingly and not being too rigid in your thinking? Can you reallocate workloads and resources to try and make the job more meaningful? Are you thinking about organisationally where you're strong, relationships, leadership, processes, procedures, and where you have diverse workforces? We touched on this, we didn't explore it, but diversity in workforces, very common in Australia because we have um, influences from all over the world, but it's harder to get right. But when you do, the, the output and the productivity and all the results are better. So really working on the diversity in your workforce because that's the societal factor. You'll have people in your workforce with very different views from their society and cultures around how you should perform as an organization. But getting that right, getting that diversity right is crucial because it means more of your people will be engaged. Because mm, diversity helps and hinders, uh, which is a whole nother topic uh, <laughs> when it comes to outcomes. So, uh, which has been very good. I really, really enjoyed this. Really, really enjoyed this discussion. It's been very good. Um, we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Um, I quite regularly do things for the first time, Craig. So a bit like you, I can get bored easily. So um, through COVID, I um, did all my um, sailing qualifications to become day skipper on yacht sailing to get out and uh, spend a bit more time out on the water. So I enjoyed that personally and writing the books. First time I've written a book. So there you go. So two new things there. Beautiful. What is the one question you would love to solve? So this is a very personal one. I would um, solve the problem and I would cure diabetes, type 1 diabetes. My son has type 1 diabetes. He was diagnosed three weeks before his 10th birthday 
Um, and it fundamentally changed his life and our lives and had a big impact from a work perspective as well. So um, for him and all the other people that struggle with uh, this lifelong incurable disease, uh, uh, medical condition that's very tough to manage, I would cure type 1 diabetes. Mm, extremely <laughs> important question. For you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this? So I'm very realistic in my approach to leadership in that I understand that we are all human beings with strengths and flaws. And so I look for uh, I look to many different leaders to look at their strengths, to see what can I pick out of their strengths that, that, that I admire, rather than there being one kind of hero worship style leader that I, I respect. Um, I find that that's a safer and more balanced way to approach it. Um, but I like, for example, um, Nikki Beaumont, who's the founder of Beaumont People. She's very, very good at thinking about the people. She always goes first to what what do the people want? And she uses that as her frame of reference for decision making. And that's a skill um, that I love, but I hadn't been taught through kind of corporate until that point. Corporate was much more, you know, about the results, the finances, that kind of thing. So I love that we think about the result as that, a result of what we do, not why we do. So that's one example. Another would be, I mentioned Shirley earlier, Shirley Chowdhury. Um, she's very good at speaking her mind and doing it in a way that doesn't get people offside. And that's important in a leader. You need to be able to, to speak up to your point earlier, Craig. You talked about, you know, potentially pushing the boundaries if you were a librarian, being able to speak up and challenge the status quo and voice things that other people might be nervous or afraid to voice. She does that in a very... Um, confident and capable, but also charming way. And that's quite hard to get right. So just two examples at the top of my head, but I look for I look mm. for things in different leaders to try and pull those together and see what I can learn from. Very good. Uh, it's been a really enjoyable uh, listening to you today. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? So um, I have a website, which is just ninamapsandbone.com.au. Um, so my information is on there. Um, the best way is probably LinkedIn. If you are a professional, which most people were listening to this would be, or my Insta is also public if that's of interest to people. All, all of those are just Nina Maps and Bone. Wonderful. We'll pop all those links in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Nina. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed some, some really deep discussion around what is meaningful work. Uh, for those uh, out there looking, make sure you check out the book, Meaningful Work. Uh, I know it's launching in July, and so for some of you listening, it may it may have just been recently. Uh, but I, I like the fact that you we've able to kind of look at what your career path was from you know growing up in the UK to spending time with horses, and then you know moving through different careers to finding your space in recruitment in in the two thousands when you moved to Sydney. But to really look at you know what is meaningful work, how is that changing? What considerations do we need to make? Um, even to the to the fact of from an education perspective, maybe what do we need to shift in the way that we are educating our young people so we set them up for success more? It is a interesting and and challenging time for people to understand how technology is going to play a part in the future of work and what does that mean for people in regards to upskilling in the end though human skills are always going to be there and they're always going to be super important so if you can focus on those first and then allow yourself to be flexible to what skills are required in the role 
then I think people will be thriving uh, in the future. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a real pleasure and I look forward to uh, you receiving great success with your book launch and people being able to find more meaningful work uh, in the future. So thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Craig. I really enjoyed it. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.